I also got a little bit of coaching last week, and I asked a particular person if, if uh, maybe these sermons were getting a little too long, and they uh, very kindly said, yes, as a matter of fact. So I'm going to work real hard on shortening things up uh, as I got the last one ready to put on our app for the podcast. Um, I noticed it was 37 minutes. And although I'd like to argue otherwise, I know I'm not that interesting. So we're going to shorten things up a little bit, uh, probably after this week. (laughs) So settle in, okay? Now, in June of 2008, I learned a pastoral life lesson. And if you remember, and if you're old, you remember this. On October 25th of 2008, President Bush had just signed into law the Economic Stimulus Act. And his idea was, and it went through Congress, and and there's a picture behind us of everybody uh, standing around and watching George sign the bill. Let's send every taxpayer in America a check that they can go out and spend. Let's stimulate this economy. Do you remember getting one of those checks? We did. Ours was about $1,300, I think. And so Pastor Jim, in 2008, being young and naive, thought, this is great news for the church. I went to the official board and I said, look. Look at the list of families. These people are going to be getting free money. Free money. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to scrimp and save for it. It's just coming from the government. And they're all going to want to give. I said, let's come up with a list of projects that we can accomplish around here. So we went through the list and we looked at ministries that we could enhance and invest in and we looked at uh, deferred maintenance items and we looked for for other kinds of projects and and I was counting dollar signs before anything had ever come in. My thought was, this is free money. Who won't be happy to give? Turns out that... uh, Only two or three families gave. Money from heaven arrived in a, in a mailbox. And even though the church encouraged it, only two or three families uh, thought to, to give from that. And I don't say this to be mean or derogatory or, or contrary or sound like a, uh, a pastor that pounds on the pulpit and, and just ranting about money. But I'm concerned about the life of a disciple. This is all about discipleship. This isn't about money. This is about discipleship. It's due in part to the fact that every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. Just because I say I believe doesn't always affect the way I live. It may not change the way that I live. We've got to do better on that. We've spent a few weeks now um, looking into this disconnect between believers and disciples. And again, a disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. Now, One of the definitions of the word disciple is learner. And it's really interesting how 
when you hear the word disciple, it's usually in some kind of religious or cult context, right? Sharon and I lived in Oregon in the 80s, and we had this really, really interesting fellow named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And he bought a compound outside Antelope, Oregon. Murphy, Idaho, is the only town that looks worse than Antelope, Oregon. If you've been to Murphy, you have a picture of what Antelope is like. But they bought this compound, and, and for some of us, we remember those days. Because from Portland to Eugene to San Francisco to Seattle, there were these red-clad followers of the Bhagwan. And they walked around with this elitist attitude. And they were devout disciples. But that's where the comparison ended when it comes to being a disciple. They were treated like cattle, like livestock, like things to be used, like things to be consumed, people to be controlled. But the great news, you guys, is Jesus treasures his disciples. He treasures us. Jesus never saw anybody as a person to be controlled. He saw both men and women, when it wasn't fashionable to recognize women, as people to be empowered, to be sent on mission. And he wasn't threatened by the success of the disciples. He wasn't. And he wasn't cruel toward them if they tried and failed. Always coaching, always prodding, always hoping for the best for them. The Bhagwan was never invested in his people. He took them for everything he, that they had. At one point, he had 25 Rolls Royces parked in Antelope, Idaho, or <laughs> Oregon, excuse me. <laughs> That's funny. <clears throat> Jesus never asked anybody to underwrite his lifestyle, did he? He invested in them. He served his disciples. He served them. In fact, even today, as we sit here, right here and now, do you know what he hopes for you? This is what he said to his disciples. It's a very true, I tell you. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. He is so invested in us. He is so proud of us. He is so hopeful for us that he looked at everything that he had done among his disciples and said, you can do this and more. Jesus wants and hopes and desires for your success as a disciple. That's what he wants for you. Now, last week we asked this question in kind of a screw tape letters format. And if you remember the screw tape letters book, it was about a head demon challenging one of his little apprentice demons to go and, and corrupt and confound the life of this man who was trying to live life as a disciple. So, if you were a minion 
who'd been assigned to derail the life of a true disciple or keep them from becoming the best disciple that they could be? What would you do? How would you do it? And I said last week, you'd convince them that the way they handle their money is nobody's business but their own. Get them to believe that they are not called to live generously or with open hands or sacrificially. When God says, leave this behind, it's not good for you. Lay it down. Make them think that it's all in their mind. Convince them that charity begins at home and you better look out for number one. That's the most important thing. Teach them that that is a godly thing. And for most wannabe disciples, this is where the rubber meets the road. Every person in the world has a financial capacity. Bill Gates has a financial capacity that blows our minds. People in poverty in America still have resources that would blow the minds of somebody living in Rwanda. We all have a financial capacity. But unless we're talking about the desperately poor of some third world country, whoever in America and in the West, wherever we fall on our hierarchy of financial capacity, there is this temptation that we have to be less than generous. There's this temptation that we have that we must justify, we must, we must qualify, we must convince ourselves that my hobbies, my habits, my desires, my want-tos are going to get the lion's share of my resources. But it's idolatry. How we handle our money may say more about the nature of our faith and hope and love and belief than any other thing that we do and say. And last Sunday, we looked at the first three truths when it comes to disciples and their wise stewardship, the use of their money. The first was a disciple will be asked to sacrifice. It's going to happen. It's going to happen over the breadth of your life, not just finances. You are going to be asked to sacrifice. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's habits. Sometimes it's good things. Sometimes it's activities or hobbies. But every disciple will be challenged again and again with the need to sacrifice, to put God first. The second thing is, a disciple is often tempted to acts of unsacrifice. When that thing that we finally were able to let go, we come back for a, a sneak peek once in a while. Let's say I was a golfer. Love golfing. Love golfing at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. That's not me. I work weekends. But... Um, Let's say that, that that was my passion and my hobby, and that's where the lion's share of my disposable income went. 
And God convicted me of that. And so I gave it up. But every once in a while, I would look or drive past a golf course and think, boy, that wasn't so bad. I should go golfing today. We are so tempted to go back to those things that we have sacrificed and, and, and justify them and pull them back into our orbits. We have to be aware of that. The third thing was a disciple learns not to compare their experience to someone else's because we are all created in the image of God, but after that, God used his imagination. We are all different. He calls us to different things. He blesses us with different gifts. He gives us different abilities. We cannot look at somebody else's life to judge our own a lot of times. What God convicts Sharon of, he may not convict me of. But I have to support her in her convictions. She supports me in my convictions. We try to live the life of Christ in front of you the best that we can. But we can't project our own convictions, what the Holy Spirit convicts me of, onto someone else. We mustn't do that. It's a recipe for chaos. Let's look at three more. When, when our use of money is under the Spirit's control, a disciple will begin to see kingdom building as a cooperative effort, not competition. When our use of money is under the Spirit's control, a disciple will begin to see kingdom building as a cooperative effort, not competition. It's one of the things that we have learned in working with Love Caldwell because we see a broader need in this city than this church can accomplish on its own. So we ask other like-minded churches to join with us to bring the presence of the kingdom to Caldwell. The dream that God gave our church is broader than our church. We need more people. But when we have an understanding of money and kingdom and discipleship, we see it as cooperative, not competitive. You begin to see and sense and pray toward all of the gaps that we find in the city when it comes to effective Christian ministry. I want to give you a couple of facts and, and then we'll, we'll lead up to a question. These facts came from Relevant Magazine, which is kind of a Gen X. It's not, not Millennial Magazine, but more of a Gen X um, Christian magazine that examines culture. And it came out in... This particular article came out in, in uh, 2016. And I'm, I'm quoting from one of their articles on giving. And the quote is, In 2016, Christians gave at 2.5% per capita. So, Christians in America, average giving, 2.5%. During the Great Depression, it was higher, 3.3%. So during the worst economic times that our country has ever seen, Christians were more generous. And numbers like that can and, and do produce a lot of 
guilt, but that's not the point. Sure, it's, it's something to be ashamed of, <laughs> but, but the bigger illustration is imagine what could be done in the name of Jesus Christ if we were doing what we should do. And they followed with these stats. If everybody gave at the scriptural level of 10%, they said there would be an additional $165 billion every year for the church of Jesus Christ to use, distribute, and make global impact. And here's a few of the things that they highlighted that could be done with that, that kind of money. $25 billion would relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion would eliminate world illiteracy in five years. $15 billion would solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places in our world where a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work for a year. We want to spend four and a half times that much to protect our border. Finally, they said 100 to 110 billion would still be left over for additional ministry expansion. And I've been thinking this week, maybe this is what Jesus was hinting at when he said, truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these. Also when he said, I will grow my church. I don't know about you, but when we see numbers like this, all I can think of, man, that is so doable. That is so doable. We live by a kingdom set of values. And the kingdom set of values does not place money at the top. It places our neighbors at the top. Fifth thing, when a disciple's use of money is under the Spirit's control, you will always find joy in the midst of scarcity. Always. Brad and Diane, happiest people you ever met were in Mexico in dirt shacks, weren't they? The greatest ministry you two ever did was in the same place. You were the happiest in that place too. It's because God's peace surpasses our understanding. Who needs money? Seriously. The peace of God passes all understanding. Jesus told a couple of stories back to back. I want you to catch something here. It's from Matthew 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. 
It's one story. The second story is just like it. It said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, how much did these men sell of what they had? How much? Everything. They didn't sell off a few stocks. They didn't cash in an IRA. They didn't close their 401k. They divested themselves of everything because they found something greater than financial wealth. They found the kingdom, the beauty that exists in the kingdom. Money pales in comparison. It's not, money holds no beauty. It holds no beauty. The kingdom holds the beauty. The kingdom holds the beauty. And these men, once glimpsing the kingdom, realized that they, they gave it all up. They recognized the beauty and the value. After the kingdom touches you or you touch it, you just find that nothing else satisfies you. Nothing. Everything else is a game of mirrors. And being a disciple is all that matters. And living your life to the glory of God is all that matters. And making an impact for Jesus Christ in the world is all that matters. Everything else pales. Even in our lack or our shortage or our discomfort, the kingdom will always remain a place of joy and comfort. If you're under financial stress, run to the kingdom. Run to the kingdom. The kingdom is, is where we are promised not to be anxious about money because our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask for it. The world's not telling you that. The world's telling you, open another MasterCard account. Right? We're told not to be anxious for anything. God knows, he supplies, he provides. Heaven has its own economy that runs contrary to our economy. And when we find that, when we find the peace that passes understanding, when we find heaven has its own economy, we'll find that the way we use money under the Spirit's control, we begin to live more graciously and grace fully. Before I realized this, I was always making a deal with the Holy Spirit. Always making a deal with the Holy Spirit. When I wanted to hang on to a little bit more of our financial resources, I would say, you know, God, I understand that, that you know, we're slacking in this area, but I'm going to make it up over here. I'll do this. Trying to control the, the balance sheet, but make sure that at the end of the day we're, we're square. Or things like, well, 
you know, I missed Sunday, but I did go to small group last Wednesday, and, you know, so that kind of makes up for it, so no worries. God doesn't play those games with us. The Holy Spirit doesn't play those games with us. We've heard people say, well, if the church has a special project, I will give for that. But I'm, I don't tithe. I, I won't tithe. Because I don't like the way they spend my money. I'll give when I know where my money's going to go. And some great things have been done in this very church under that ethic. But it's the wrong ethic. It's God's money. This is His house. We're told to maintain it, take care of it, treasure it. Only one time in all of Scripture did God ever negotiate with humanity. It just happens to be about money. The prophet Malachi recorded this conversation, and it's almost like he's, he's a, uh, a fly on the wall. It's in Malachi chapter 3. And it's this conversation between the people of, of Israel, his own people, and God. God says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I made a promise. I stick to it. I, I've kept it. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? God's on to them. They're not that naive. God asks him this question, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? And they played the innocent. But you ask, how are we robbing you? God says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Then, God says, test me in this. Test me. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. In the body of our Bible, in the whole, in the whole thing, one time, God says, put me to the test. And it's over money. You think it's, you think it's a critical issue? And he says, test me. Who do you suppose is going to be more faithful? You or God? He goes on to say, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. That's your economy. You're going to prosper if you put me first. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. More blessing. It's the only place in all of Scripture where God is willing to be put to the test. He asks us to put him to the test. 
when we were at the Salem Church, we had a pastor and everybody on uh, our official board there kind of did the gasp when he gave everybody a guarantee that if God did not prosper them in the coming year after they committed to God's financial plan, that he would make sure they got every nickel back. We had 58 families sign up as first-time givers. At the end of the year, God had prospered every one. When we find the kingdom, when we find the reality of God's offer and God's promise, when we, when we scratch the surface there, the question changes. The question changes from, not from how, how much do I have to give to how must I give. There's a component in your heart and in your spirit that changes, that asks a different question. How can I give? What can I bring? What can I offer? God, what would you have me do? And this isn't restricted to just our finances. It goes clear across our entire life. That brings us back to an earlier point. When we have those moments with God, when he makes it abundantly clear to us, we are his, he is ours, this is the kingdom. Kingdom has a different economy. This is how we should give. Again, we're not to compare ourselves to anybody else. No comparisons. God has different assignments for each one of us. But we should be able to trust one another in that each one of us is giving from the level that we are able in the level that the Spirit has called us to. That's it. We have to be able to have that trust with one another. Remember last week we talked about the Acts account and, and how things were just going ridiculously well in the early church. And in fact, some people that had homes and land, they went out and sold them and then brought the proceeds in and just left them at the apostles' feet. Not everybody was called to do that. Just those that could. Just those that needed to. And the Bible, Dr. Luke doesn't state it as this is a fact and this is a rule. He just says, hey, this is what happened. God calls certain people at certain times to do extraordinary things. And we don't even have the names of these people. They're not held up as heroes necessarily. They're held up as being faithful. They became our example now, one thing that's real critical, too, is to acknowledge the truth that we're not all in the same spot. We're not all in the same position. Some of us are married, and, and our spouse does not share our belief. Again, we're not to make comparisons. The expectation is set by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that will guide people 
to where he wants them to be and help them negotiate these hard, hard questions like, how do I give? And it also means that we all show grace and understanding toward those who are still in process, still not quite fully mature disciples, and that's every last one of us. As a disciple, we are responsible for what we can do, not for what we cannot do. But God is growing you. He wants to grow you further. He wants to take you to the next step. This isn't about money. This is about being a disciple. It's about being a disciple who goes out and makes another disciple like we're doing. Let's pray. Father God, we want to be we want to be living sacrifices. We want to be mirror images of your son Jesus. We want to be reliable and faithful. We want to be yours. God, we thank you for this time and place. We thank you that you provide employment and you provide income. We're thankful that you sustain every area of our lives. God, help us. Help us to uh, take the trust that we put in our money and put it back into you. Like these men in Jesus' story that, that found the treasure and went out and sold everything, everything that they had for the kingdom. It is not a fair exchange, Father. You give us so much more you give us so much more than the value of our currency. So thank you for this truth. Help us, Father. You know what our financial situation is over the last couple of months. It hasn't been good. But you tell us not to be anxious. So we choose not to be anxious. It's just one of those things. And we will trust we will wait expectantly to see your answer. In all of these things, Father, we are such a blessed people. Such a blessed people. Help us to invest wisely in our community, in the facility. God, everywhere we spend money, may it be done, uh, uh, done well. Father, as we come to this table, It so represents your investment in our world, the sending of your son. You made a way forward for us. He's the one that has called us to discipleship, to a life of following him, a life of making more disciples. 
So, Father, it's him that we honor this morning. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for his willing sacrifice, and we thank you for his shed blood. And we thank you for resurrection power. All these things, Father, we pray in your name. Amen.